Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Rachel Sandby-Thomas, who's going to be talking to us about skills and the importance of skills in our society, in our labor market. Rachel is well-placed to talk about this. She sits on the Labor Party's Council of Skills Advisors. She's the registrar at the University of Warwick here in the UK and also has extensive government experience in this space as well. So we'll look at a few things such as social mobility, resilience, soft skills, AI, and quite a few other bits as well. And without further ado, Rachel, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I know you don't like being labeled an expert or a guru on the on the world of skills, but perhaps no. I might uh, I might use those terms anyway. Thank you. What's the state of affairs with skills in the UK? That's a very narrow question for you. Oh, my God. Where do you even start? <laughs> um, well, let's start on the positive, which is that I think it is widely acknowledged that they are essential to productivity and growth. We have an interesting economy in the UK and the fact that we have a lot of very high skills and we've got a lot of low skill jobs, but there is a big hollowing out in the middle. Some would refer to it as the Marilyn Monroe figure of skills. Um, And we haven't quite worked out how to bridge that gap. And there are predictions that actually as we move forward into the greater world of AI, actually, that's going to get worse. It's been research done recently, which says that kind of uh, that uh, gap's going to get even worse. So more high skill jobs and more low skill jobs, but none in the middle. And of course, because uh, we also have uh, a lot of devolution, regional devolution at the moment as well, there is a kind of a tug between what's happening at the national level and what is happening in the uh, regional you know the regions who are all producing their own skills plans you could close your eyes you wouldn't know the difference from one skills plan to the next skills plan and there was absolutely no coordination going on at national level that i can see of any of those plans so there is no plan strategic skills plan going forward uh, which is vitally needed And it needs to be aligned between the regions uh, nationally and locally. It needs to be aligned with businesses. It needs to be aligned with all of the bodies in the skills agenda, right from, you know, nurseries and early years, the whole way through to FE colleges or universities, those in HE. Um, And that is not really happening. And nor is it actually happening internally within government either. So none of the, there is no oversight of skills, needs, where there is provision. Uh, For example, in the Hinkley Point, they were doing great work training up all of these steel workers, which was um, a skill which had fallen into, you know, uh, disrepair. Nobody was really doing it. They've they've trained up, done a brilliant job training up all of these young people to do it. And as soon as that is constructed, where do those young people go? You know, then you had HS2. And so the obvious thing was to say, well, look, look, there's all these jobs in HS2, but no, because nobody is coordinating it. Even though I did suggest this when I was in government, uh, nobody was interested. So again, they're going to start from the bottom upwards, you know, re-skilling, 
lots and lots of young people, and then they're not going to have kind of a uh, future necessarily, or you know. Uh, now you touched on you touched on government. Uh, be great to get a little bit of that context of your experience just to set the tone. Yeah, no. So I was uh, in the Department for Business Innovation and Skills. Business was. Uh, and I was on the board from 2008 until 2016 when I left. And for the last four years of that, I was director general for skills as well as business. So I had a, a you know a fairly vast portfolio, uh, kind of, which went in. I didn't have everything at all at the one time, but I did have skills for the whole four years. And I had advanced manufacturing, and I had small business, and I had local growth, and I had better regulation so you know quite a widespread portfolio which actually in many ways was extremely useful uh in the skills role because it meant at least it wasn't divorced from business uh both large and small and besides that you, you're also on the council of skills advisors for the labor yeah. party you're also at warwick university so you're yes. wearing various hats <laughs> so i wear various hats I did leave central government to go and start up the Institute for Apprentices because that was one of our main policy areas and something that I feel very passionate about. Um, the value of apprentices and the kind of the desire for there to be parity of esteem. I mean, they are a very good route for social mobility, but they shouldn't just be seen for that. They should be seen as inherently valuable for uh, what they are and the really practical skills that they bring. And, you know, in this age of HE fees, it's a brilliant way to earn and learn. So I kind of went to go and set up the Institute for Apprenticeships and then got lured by the University of Warwick to be the registrar there, which basically effectively shorthand means I kind of head up the non-academic side. It's not a complete truth, but it's kind of a an upper truth. So, you know, that was very interesting for me to see because I had further education was my remit, not higher education, albeit obviously I've been around the board. So I'd heard about all the reforms, et cetera, I knew what the thinking was behind them. But it's very interesting being now on the other side. I'm also involved in quite a lot of charities looking at young people from socioeconomically deprived areas and how we can kind of better get them into work. So uh, the EY Foundation is one of those and previously leap confronting conflict, which helped young people deal in a positive way with conflict because uh, they needed to do that in order for them then to progress and go on a kind of a better path than sometimes uh, they had been on. And so I think probably because of that mix of things, I was asked, very honoured to be asked uh, to be one of the four skills advisors on the Council of Skills Advisors to the Labour Party. And we produced a report last November and initially, the brief was, so it was very much uh, led by David Blunkett. And he asked us to produce three or four pages each with the kind of the ambition of producing quite a short, succinct document. And I haven't actually counted how many pages are in it, but it is not short. It's relatively succinct, probably not that succinct, but it's very comprehensive. Uh, because actually, what we find when we started looking at it is that you know, it is the system is all completely interlinked. So every time you fiddle with one part, you change something else. And actually everywhere we looked, everywhere, every bit of the system needs looking at and needs amending. So it is a, you know, it is a large report, but it is a very, very large piece of work which needs to be done. Um, and I, But I really like the fact that we looked at it systemically because actually most 
people don't um, and most ministers don't and most pieces of legislation don't. They just look at a certain bit of it, um, which, you know, the law of unintended consequences uh, goes wild. So I'm quite proud of it. And one of its keynote recommendations is a body which I think they're now calling Skills England, which is absolutely intended to do that alignment and coordination piece that I think is so badly missing to, you know, the kind of the marrying of the national, the regional, the local across government with businesses, with trade unions, with FE colleges, schools, and universities, you know, that whole alignment piece, which I think would be really key to getting the system to work. It must be really exciting for you, though, working on this report, because in all likelihood, I don't know, if, if you're wagering, I think, on how things may play out down the line uh, with general elections, it's not inconceivable that that report actually then becomes government policy. Well, I sincerely hope so. And actually, what was really nice for me was that the more I got into it, the more I began to remember things that I had wanted to do when I was DG Skills, which had got foiled by Treasury. So actually being able to reintroduce those and reintroduce uh, some of those ideas uh, was really exciting. So, you know, initially when we introduced the apprenticeship levy, which was introduced on my watch as a means of actually trying to get businesses to invest in skills and training, because actually we have internationally a woeful record over the last 10 to 20 years of our companies investing. It's not a complete truth. It's not a universal truth, obviously, because there are some companies do it brilliantly. But overall, we're kind of, we're a shocker. Um, but it was meant not just for apprenticeships. It was meant for everything. It was meant for all employee training to upskill those who are already in employment. And it didn't necessarily have to be through an apprenticeship. But for reasons unknown to me, it was decided within Treasury, which may have been connected to the David Cameron 3 million target, that it should be just restricted to apprenticeships. Um, and the feedback that we have been getting, because we have been kind of going around the country speaking to businesses, is absolutely desperation for there to be more flexibility in the levy, as was the, um, as was the intent. And, you know, the lifelong learning bill, which is going through, I mean, that very much started I had a conversation with the Royal Society of Chemistry, actually, who had fantastic pathways through FE into HE, could go back out again into FE, and people continued to learn and create qualifications during the course of their working life. So that was very much the thinking that kind of uh, lay behind the lifelong learning, which, you know, this government are producing a bill, which is all good, but, you know, is something also that the report advocates uh, now, it's a lengthy report, a, a lot of different areas that you've covered. You touched on something I'd love to drill into a little bit more, which was mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned social mobility yeah. uh, a little bit earlier. Um, yeah. That's an area close to my heart. I, I, I find it, uh, what, what are we looking at here in the UK, within a UK context? How much or how little do we have of social mobility? Well, we have a lot of inequality. Um, we have a lot of inequality. Um, and it's been getting wider and it was getting wider before the pandemic. But most of the evidence is that it's got even wider since the pandemic. And I think, you know, that kind of digital uh, deficit that a lot of families faced really came out during the pandemic where, you know, schools were trying to teach online. But, you know, not everybody had a phone or an iPad or whatever. So, you know, the kind of they were rushing to 
try and get them or buy them and charities were rushing to provide them. It kind of really showed it up. So it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And of course, you know, there was lots of research done years and years ago saying that, you know, those early years are absolutely crucial in a child's development. And if they don't get, you know, put on the right path really early on, you know, they're they're going to be playing catch up basically the whole way through their lives. And yet, you know, most of that money has been stripped out. So again, you know, a large part of the report is very much putting money back, investing in those early years. Another aspect of it, because it obviously is multifaceted, is the fact that, you know, most of the data has been showing for quite a while that those who are slipping behind the most in terms of English and maths are actually, maybe counterintuitively, I don't know, but they tend to be working class white boys. So, you know, I'm really worried about this because I just think it's storing up all sorts of social problems ahead of us. You know, I think there's going to be feelings of resentment. Nobody really knows what it is. It may be that because we've been such a kind of a a comfortable, developed country for a long time, that maybe we don't have that hunger for education that other developing countries have because they see it so much as a route out of poverty but we don't seem to have it in the same extent so i think that's i think i think that's a huge issue unless it's addressed it's going to i think it could potentially lead to all sorts of moves towards the right wing politics and social unrest in years to come now with regards to the pandemic um those young people who uh, had their 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 higher education uh, in, remotely through video, and then who go into a workforce where there's also a lot of teleworking, remote working, and so they miss out on 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 the social interaction at university. Arguably, they miss out on the mentorship opportunities. Perhaps, right? I mean, you learn so much by watching people at work. You don't even realize that you do it. You just kind of do it by osmosis and absorbing it. Plus the fact that it's much more difficult to ask, you know, what you consider to be an idiot question uh, of somebody kind of online if you're working from home, you know, because it's that whole thing that you need to go and call them on Microsoft Teams and then you kind of think you're disturbing them. You know, it's not the same thing as just popping your head, you know, around an office or around a desk saying at their desk, um, or, you know, as I used to ask my pals, uh, you know, at work. So there's a whole kind of layer of um, learning and also socialising, um, which doesn't seem to be going on. But the young people themselves have got so used to it that a lot of them don't want to be coming into the office all the time. You know, they like being at home, uh, which me being that much more, uh, that much older and extrovert, you know, I kind of, I mean, I do like working from home some of the time, but not probably to the extent but the other um, reason, uh, again, there's a kind of a worrying, growing body of evidence that uh, presenteeism is being substituted for performance. So, and then there's a worry that actually this is going to have potentially a gender impact because, um, again, some research has been done, which is showing that more men are choosing going to go back to the office, whereas the woman, you know, especially if they're mid-career and having children, are choosing to work more from home 
uh, because it's really easy with childcare responsibilities. Uh, obviously, this is not a complete truth for everybody because actually there has been greater sharing, I think, of the uh, parental burden, uh, which has been eased by hybrid working. But there is a danger that if performance is going to be measured by presenteeism and women are choosing to work from home more, that actually it's going to bring its own kind of uh, you know inequality. What about from a university perspective? So you're touching on the younger generations yeah. and the the, the financial uh, costs of going to university. Never mind the return on that investment, because that's in, in question as well. Uh, and the changing nature of work, the changing nature of uh, and the unpredictable uh, nature of where we're heading. Yeah, the university is sort of a, a bastion where where people are enriched and they're enhanced and they come out better and uh, and more capable. Um, challenging, right? Well, it is, but actually in many ways, the more I've been thinking about this, the more I actually think, despite the government rhetoric to the opposite, the more I actually think they've got it right. Um, it is exactly that enrichment and it's that. So, you know, the arts subjects are getting a real bashing at the moment about, you know, being useless. Well, if you look at it in a purely utilitarian way, which is a very, very one-dimensional way of looking at it, uh, maybe that's true. Uh, but actually what that misses is, are the underlying skills, the, you know, often lots of creativity, the ability to critique, to analyse, all of which are absolutely key in the world of um, AI, um, and the use of imagination. Um, all of these things are things that, you know, AI, so yes, AI might be able to produce, you know, your perfect essay, you know, chat GBT, and that's one thing, but it's not, it's not, it's all it's doing is scraping knowledge. It's not developing skills, which is what the human uh, USP is. So uh, I think in many ways, a lot of those less vocational subjects, which teach those wider skills, which are more adaptable and flexible going forward, could be more valuable in the long term than the heavily vocational ones. Because actually, again, the vocational ones at the moment, much, you know, and I have nothing against them, I was a big proponent of them when I was uh, DG skills, is that, you know, they are very much for the what we can see. So therefore, the short term, maybe might be useful for the medium term, but probably not as useful necessarily for the long term and of course as ever you know the kind of the um the answer will be somewhere in the middle between these two and again part of a conversation i was having this week which is this completely false dichotomy uh which has become part of the current political rhetoric between either you know your stem so science technology engineering maths or your arts whereas actually of course the best answers you know are somewhere in the middle you know and, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was a completely brilliant mathematician, but he was also a completely brilliant artist. You know, Christopher Wren was a brilliant mathematician, but he was a fantastic architect. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. And actually, when you combine those skills, you you get such richness, um, which you wouldn't get if you were only looking at one set of them. Yeah, no, they're definitely not mutually exclusive, despite what people might think, right? You yeah, think they do. One or the other. You know, but it's the rhetoric, isn't it? And I kind of, I find it very depressing because, you know, I'm a mother myself. And when I'm talking to um, other parents, you know, in the schoolyard or whatever, you do get a lot of this thinking parroted now. And so, you know, when I can say, well, actually, I'm not absolutely sure that, that is true. You're kind of going against the 
the flow of the accepted conversation at the moment. What, what do you hear from the from the employers, the corporates, the uh, because the university is also at that it's it's a it's a focal point where you you have the the students coming in, the labor market's going to be looking at you for for human capital. Uh, you want to they want to make sure obviously that they're able to attract the right people, that the right people have the right skills. Um, so consequently, it's it's not a one way conversation, right? There's an iterative exchange between between all of these stakeholders. But it, but it's quite difficult trying to probe by what employers mean when they say skills. You me, I had many conversations about this, and because I have legal background, you know, I kind of can get quite forensic. Um, and they talk about different things during the course quite often of one conversation so it can be vocational skills but when they say and you know there's a lot of rhetoric at the moment about you know low value qualifications and all that kind of in employers minds those are the ones which purport to be vocational but actually when they arrive they're not actually that vocational you know or they're out of date they're not what they need at the moment meaning that person is just not going to be able to function or execute the way you would like yes and they kind of think he's done that fantastic vocational degree marvelous i'll be able to literally plug him in and he'll be able to go but he can't um and you know employers have kind of got used to the idea or kind of not used to it they've kind of forgotten the idea that actually they kind of need to train people in the workplace when they kind of first arrive that very few people just land and are kind of perfect and ready to go um so the you know that and that's part of the conversation which isn't really happening but anyway so that's one basket of things but the other basket of skills they talk uh, about are the much softer skills so that can range from uh turning up on time actually going to work every day uh uh being able to talk to people working as a team problem solving being creative using common sense all of those kind of you know really soft skills which actually are generally basketed under employability skills but certainly you know i would like to think that at warwick the whole way that actually our students are taught, which is a very co-creative way. So it's not just, you know, it's not big schools type where they go to lectures, get fed, regurgitated out again. You know, they do lots and lots of peer learning. Uh, they do lots of assignments. They set lots of things. They do their own research, very much trying to make them independent learners and collaborators um, or collaborators rather. So that is all part of the rationale for how you set them up to go into the uh, workplace. But again, you know, resilience, that's another big work, um, skill, which I again, I think is going to become more and more important going forward. And again, you know, because of the pandemic, we're actually seeing people, young people coming out with less resilience. Yeah, I hear that all the time. It's a really big issue. And somebody worryingly said to me that they said, but we haven't even seen the you know, I haven't, near, I haven't nearly seen the end of it because we keep thinking it's those that were in the three years, but actually, of course, it goes right through to those primary school children who missed out on all that socialisation and being with others uh, during it. And apparently it's beginning to ripple through too. So, you know, we're kind of, we have um, quite a while to go, I think, to get over the effects of the pandemic. Are you feeling optimistic? I kind of veer. 
I veer, you know, when I kind of look and see how much there is to do, because I do think there is a huge amount to do, I kind of want to go and get a pillow and just stick my head underneath it and think this is all too difficult. Thank goodness I'm getting older. Uh, but actually, I'm naturally, I'm naturally optimistic. And I just think there is something about the human spirit and the resilience of the human spirit and the ingenuity of the human spirit that will prevail. And that somehow, you know, we will manage to use AI to do all the boring stuff that actually, you know, isn't kind of, you know, uh, chicken soup for the soul. And that actually that we will use it to free up humans to do the things that they're really good at. Do you think that the AI angle is going to be arguably the most transformative uh, factor? Yeah, I do. I think it's absolutely. I mean, just seeing... So I was speaking at a conference uh, last year and we were kind of discussing skills going forward and I kind of um, being pondering on how uh, valid that is one year on. And, you know, absolutely, you know, we had, a, you know, lots of brilliant talks about how, how AI was coming do, 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 for people very much, you know, in this space, but no idea of just how fast it's, fast it's developing. And I think it's just going to accelerate and accelerate. So, yeah, I do. I think, I think, you know, I think it's here, just like, you know, the mobile phone on the internet. Um, and, you know, and once it comes, I think people who think that they can hold it back, I just think they're feeling themselves. It's like telling the tide not to flow. It's just not going to happen. So we just have to work out how to best use it to supplement what is good about being a human rather than trying to turn it off. Mm. It's... um it's interesting how you ended up um, being really well versed on, on in this space, but you actually started your life as a as a solicitor. You know, I don't think you, you were expecting to, to you you wouldn't have foreseen this development in your career, right? No, never. And you know, and I've I've been very lucky because I've had you know what they call a T bar career. So you know, I went up uh, legal, you know, kind of to a senior level, and then I kind of expanded across. But having said that, you know, I didn't I didn't go up the legal route you know with one speciality the whole way through I had I did lots and lots of different jobs um, because I moved from private practice where I would have been forced to specialize which I didn't want to uh, into the uh, government legal service which was the best move I probably ever made because it was so fascinating so I would go from an area of becoming a deep expert in something for example from pharmaceutical regulatory uh when i was advising the mhra uh and i would do that for you know a few years the mhra just let us know they were sorry medical health care uh and regulatory products advisory thing they're the lots who basically uh um licensed the covid vaccines that was their kind of moment in the in the sun um through to you know advising the attorney general on anything to do with eu law uh, lots of human rights law, lots of kind of devolution, lots of various questions, you know, from any government department. And the only thing you knew when you opened the file was that it was going to be difficult, difficult and or politically sensitive and or departments couldn't agree. Those are only three certainties. So, you know, and I moved about, you know, every three to four years. So I had a really, really interesting and varied um, career with them, which I adored. And then, you know, I became DG Legal. And then it was only really when there were there's a merge of departments and they're kind of trying to reduce the amount of lawyers. And because I've always been interested in leadership, 
and capability and people issues just always you know even when I was in private sector you know I kind of I love watching people and observing them and trying to analyze now why on earth would you do that and why on earth would you do that I think yeah always loved it um so anyway, I then became legal people and comms, uh, which was a huge baptism of fire, because especially as the department was downsizing. Um, and I did that for about uh, two and a half years, which was a huge uh, learning experience. Um, and then they kind of said, oh, well, you can do that now. You can do that now. So why do you take on this massive policy job? So, I mean, I call myself DG Business and Skills because that was absolutely where my whole attention was. Um and because it was the area that needed most work. But I was DG Legal as well, which had been previously, you know, one of the six major jobs in the government legal service, you know, being considered a great big chunky job in its own right. But it kind of became my baby on the hip. But perhaps the way you're describing your own narrative, that, that, that I think speaks volumes for what perhaps part of the issue is here in terms of it is your curiosity. Yes that made you in some ways take the steps that you took and learn what you did when you did under those new circumstances it was not because of what happened at undergraduate uh, studies and and perhaps that's the i don't know if that's a secret sauce but somehow fostering that that in, intrinsic or internal motivation to to seek knowledge and to be curious and be excited about learning this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm sure I'm absolutely sure that's right. Plus the fact, you know, I have been very lucky that I have worked with great people who have, you know, recognized that and given me lots of opportunities. So a certain amount of, you know, making choices because I knew that otherwise I was going to get bored, which also, you know, does does involve a certain amount of self-awareness. You need to know yourself and your and your kind of strengths. I mean, you know, my mother is always saying to me, for goodness sake, you know, just as soon as you know something about anything, you get bored and you move on. You know, what's all that about? But, you know, that's, that is just very much me. And it's not for everybody, but it is me. Um, but, you know, but you do need people to, you know, I mean, not giving you favourite treatment or anything, but offering up opportunities and offering you wise counsel and good advice. Um, and I remember one of my uh, former bosses who became a mentor and then became a friend, uh, with many of them, you know, he just said to me, just say yes to everything. Just say yes. Anybody ask you, just say yes, because you never know what you're going to learn, who you're going to meet, what it's going to lead to. Just say yes. And that was probably the best piece of advice I was ever given. And you can't over overstate the importance of mentors, of champions, of people Absolutely. who are going to, right? Absolutely. You cannot. Um, and the other thing that I think, you know, there's one particularly uh, hard 14 months for all sorts of reasons. It was, uh, I mean, you know, I could write a book about it, but um, it was very hard for every, everything going on. It was hugely stressful, very hard, whatever, whatever. But actually that, well, it taught me two things. Uh, one was an external at a meeting who was observing, uh, saying to me afterwards, oh my goodness, Rachel, that was a really difficult, the passive aggression in that meeting. And I thought, yeah, is that what I was? <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> and she said, but you have a, a spine of steel, she said, because I could see you reaching in for it. And I thought, how interesting, do I? Do I? And then I thought, actually, because, you know, there is an obstinacy within me that I kind of think, hmm. I thought, yeah, you're right. And actually, it was a hugely 
valuable thing for her to observe and affirm for me because I've kind of used it ever since when the going gets tough. But the other thing during that period was that I had to learn where to get my energy from, how to recharge my battery when, you know, I was about to, you know, hit the floor. And that to me was from conversations. So I would go and seek out colleagues who I felt safe with, um, you know, who would be supportive and, you know, basically go and have a good wine and, you know, sometimes a good cry. And then, and then they would refuel me and then I'd kind of, you know, back into work, grab the spine of steel and off you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I learned so much during that 14 months. So. And mentors, I think um, it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to be part of a mentorship program. I mean, I think if you see people who you admire, who you think are doing interesting things, just start that conversation. Right. And even if it's only, even if you only have a couple of conversations, I mean, what does, what does that matter? I mean, I'm actually setting up a mentoring uh, scheme for the Goldsmiths Company where um, I'm lucky enough to be a freeman. And that's fine. And, you know, it is quite structured. Um, and in many ways, it's, you know, very much the gift of listening time. She's very much using the Nancy Klein uh, methodology. And that is fabulous. But I don't think it's the only way to do it. Um, so most of the mentors I have had uh, are people who I've already known, probably. So I already have some and they have kind of an idea of my strengths and weaknesses and foibles and all that kind of stuff. But they're great because just the ability to be able to start to talk something through with them, you know, in in that safe space where you know they've got your back, but also they're not just going to tell you what you want to hear or they're just going to ask you that question, which makes you think about it in a different way. I mean, hugely, hugely valuable. Yeah. And as you know, sometimes it's just one conversation, sometimes an ongoing relationship doesn't matter. Absolutely. What's that key takeaway? What's the key thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, until you asked me about that curiosity thing, it would have been it would have been about, you know, keeping an open mind, uh, being flexible, developing resilience, uh, kind of going with flow. But actually, I do think that curious mindset may be the, the key takeaway. And that's combined with the others, you know, kind of gives a a kind of a broad enough skill set that will survive whatever it is AI in the future is going to throw at us. Well, here's to a curious mindset. I love it. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. Really a pleasure seeing you again, speaking with you and uh, learning about all things having to do with skills. <laughs> I've hardly scratched the surface. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Rachel Sandby Thomas. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other episodes and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you on Monday.